0: Pod Only Knows is a Cage Club Podcast. For other smart podcasts on culture, pop, and otherwise, go to cageclub.me.
1: You can contact us via email at P-O-K at cageclub.me.
0: You can find me on Twitter at probably Real J-B.
1: And you can find me at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker. And you can find the show on Twitter at Pod Only Knows Pod.
0: The show is written and produced by us. Welcome to Pod Only Knows. I'm John Brooks.
1: And I'm Kelly Baker.
0: Kelly, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm um, recovering from post-vacation, so I'm tired, but also like feel like I'm doing pretty good, so mm-hmm.
0: it's exciting mm-hmm. to not be
1: responsible for other human beings for like a week, so I would recommend it. <laughs>
0: How was how was the vacation? Otherwise,
1: the vacation was great. So I was in Maine Mm -hmm. for a week with um, guest of the podcast Megan Goodwin. So, um, by the way, if that's
0: that's 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 what we do. If you if you're a guest on the podcast, we will come visit you for a week. (laughs) We will
1: uh, come visit you for a week. Yeah, be prepared. Pod
0: only knows promise. It is. Everybody, it yeah. is now. You hang now out with you're us afraid. At your you're house. afraid,
1: and mm-hmm. it's going to be. Yeah. No. Um. So it was. It was glorious because Maine is lovely this time of year, and we had more sunny days than gloomy days, and mm-hmm. the weather nice was, was in here, the yeah. 80s. And Maine yeah. folks were complaining about the heat, but like I'm a Florida person, mm. so it was like lovely. Um, because it wasn't you know in the <laughs> 90s with a heat index of like 108. So um. So it was great. Like, I got to see the botanical gardens and see some like giant troll statues. And I got to go to the beach and collect rocks because beaches in Maine are rocky instead of like white sands and shells. They
0: are. That is true. They are. They're very rocky. (laughs) Yep. I got to
1: see lighthouses, um, which I guess is a thing that I'm supposed to do. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Saw the old port. Um, I got to do axe throwing, which. Um, wow. Considering how much of a misadventurer I am, like that was a dicey endeavor. But um, yeah, did all was... sur- did
0: all survive? Where everyone was survived. Okay.
1: Everyone <laughs> survived. Um, I did not have to take. My acute anxiety meds to do it, which I thought was a super big victory. Uh, but it was lots of fun, like just hurling the axes at the um, <laughs> at the walls <laughs> and hoping that they actually stick. Um, and I'm not good at it at all. But I like squeaked and squealed every time I actually got the axe to like lodge into the target. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, and I had never done it before, and now I want to do it again. But I don't want to do it. With my children ever, even when they're grown ups, because that would just stress yeah. me out. But, um, but yeah, no, it yeah. was lots and lots of fun. Um, but yeah, I, I deeply recommend taking vacations without small children. Like, I've never <laughs> done it before. I don't know that I'll ever do it again, but like, I'm here for it. So, sure. um, yeah. 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 Now, my children were about to mutiny by the time I got back home. Right. Um, but they didn't mutiny, so that's the important point yeah. I think to make there. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was overall it was really lovely, and I'd never been to Maine, so I can check that state <laughs> on my list.
0: <laughs> did you go to the original L.L. Bean, the, the great oh, main tourist Of course attraction. we
1: did. We made the pilgrimage nice. to mm-hmm. the original L.L. Bean. I might have even bought yeah. a fleece that I'll maybe wear in Florida like
0: you, have, you, you have to buy twice, yeah.
1: right? They um, won't let you
0: out of the store without a fleece.
1: No, I think that they will like chase you down. <laughs> but um, And the very nice saleswoman wanted me to know that it was windproof. And I was like, girl, I'm from Florida. I will wear this two weeks. But like, sure. Yeah. Like, yes. it'll be great. During the, the two, two weeks, weeks that I wear it, this
0: is appropriate clothing. <laughs> it is going to be awesome.
1: Or it will be my winter jacket, right? Winter in Florida jacket will be this yeah. fleece. So, um, yeah. because it's not really real winter here. So, um, <laughs> compared to anywhere else in the world. Um, but yeah, so we went to the Albin. I saw the giant boot you know yes yeah which i had to do um mm-hmm. but yeah i know i did i did the main experiences that you have the checklist for um to yeah. do that um you know i went to peaks island and we were able to drive around and look and that was really neat to you and yeah so i mean i got to ride on a ferry i mean what so yeah i just i'm i'm a pretty easy tourist though so like all the small (laughs) things i'm like i'm on a boat in a car like this is amazing so anyone that does this routinely is probably like she's way too excited about this but (laughs) it was my
0: sister went to bates so i know that area pretty well yeah yeah
1: yeah um so yeah which is funny actually
0: I was thinking because like we've had two guests who are connected to my my brother and sisters alma maters and none <laughs> who are connected to mine so that's interesting. <laughs> we've had no one connected, connected to
1: mine yet either. Yeah, like we have to figure out how to make that work. Yeah. Yeah. You just... No
0: Ithaca College connection and no mm. um, where no you no Florida went to State. Yeah. Florida State. That's, a, that's Florida
1: it. Florida State number one party school while I was there. Is that? Or is Florida one claim. of those?
0: One of those states with like a Florida State and then like a Florida like a University of. And then there's like a whole bunch of different variations. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Tons of variations. People get deeply upset if you confuse them. (laughs) Yeah. No, somebody once introduced me as being from the university of Florida and I thought I wasn't that person. And then I like gasped dramatically. I was like, how dare you announce that I was from this, like, like I even care, but it was just this moment where I was like, (gasps) Oh, oh," right. Um, Not that it matters, right? University of Florida has a wonderful
0: religious studies
1: graduate program, and it doesn't matter, right? But it was just this thing where I was like, no, I am at the other Florida school that has a confusing name. How dare you mix them up? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: We'll we'll have to look for guests who... um, or somehow have some connection to our schools but like yeah. i guess they'd be like my old professors i don't know uh <laughs> <laughs> we're like
1: we're like now that we're thinking it through like we've yeah got we like, gotta work on this right yeah um, yeah. yeah so what anyway. so that's my good news, that's, that your good news. Yeah, this, that's your good news yeah that's right and i survived axe sense. throwing so yeah. yes you know. I've never axe
0: thrown, but I'm always interested in going to one of those rooms where you just break stuff. That sounds really appealing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I could get get behind that too. Um, Yeah. yeah, I was was on the fence about the axe throwing, though Megan assured me that I would enjoy it. And she was exactly Mm -hmm. right. Something is very satisfying about throwing the axes at the target, especially when they like... Land and I got a bullseye multiple times and I had what? photo documentary evidence because wow. I knew my family would not believe me unless I had <laughs> photos
0: <laughs> uh. Where mouth would not be good enough. Um but yeah so it is <laughs> isn't it sad? Sure you did. Um,
1: sure you did, Kelly. Okay, yeah. right, buddy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so so tell us what your good news is.
0: Well, I guess since we're on the vacation topic, uh, so this isn't my good news. My good news is, is related to this, but we are we are uh, as you are listening to this, as this is episode's released, we are leaving for England for two weeks tomorrow. I guess tomorrow night. I think uh, tomorrow night or, or or two nights from now, something like that. Um, so yeah, that's going to be fun, and that will be with kids.
1: it's
0: it's their first time on an airplane well the oldest has been on an airplane but not since since she was like two or three uh but the twins have never been on an airplane and um it's an overnight flight so hopefully they'll sleep through most of it Um,
1: remind us of their ages again uh
0: my oldest is will be 10 in november and the twins are seven okay all
1: right so all right
0: they're, yeah, not, maybe yeah. asleep. We, so they're not. Yeah, sleep. They're not super like,
1: small, right?
0: Right, and they're not. They're not so small that it's going to be like like lugging them around London is going to be all that difficult. But right. um, anyway, so on Saturday, uh, we are going to a charity soccer game at Stamford Bridge, which is where Chelsea plays. Um, that is a fundraiser for Ukraine, and it's going to uh, include a bunch of really great current and former. Soccer players um,
2: awesome.
0: playing for for Team Blue and Team Yellow, uh, but two of them who are playing this is really exciting. Exciting because <laughs> um, <laughs> you would actually know who these are: um, are Toeib Jimmo and Phil Dunster, uh, better known as Sam Bassania and Jamie Tart. So I was
1: like, I was like, Will I know? And then you said, and I was like, <laughs> I do actually know.
0: <laughs> so so Jimmo is playing for Team. Uh yellow, I think, or no, team blue, and then Phil Dunster's playing for Team Yellow. I gotta root for Team Yellow because um Patrick Vieira, who who up until recently was the manager for my favorite team, Crystal Palace, is also playing on that team. So I'll be I'll be on team Jamie Tart um rooting for them. But yeah, it'd be fun to watch them actually actually play some soccer. So yeah. it's gonna be yeah, a combination of like real players and also people who are like like Mark Strong, the actor, is also on that team. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I'm sure he must have played soccer at some point in his, in his life. Um, I don't <laughs> think they have anybody who's like definitely going to get injured. I don't like, I think they're all oh, people no. who are like yeah. competent <laughs> to Fair play enough. soccer. Great. Um, okay. But it'll be really fun. And like the halftime show is like the pretenders and Mel C. Um, oh, wow. and, and some other people. So, yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun uh so looking yeah, forward no, to that's that.
1: exciting
0: yeah and looking forward to two weeks in in england um in general yeah. but but yes that i thought i thought you'd get a kick out of that one so no
1: i do i mean come <laughs> on. like how can you beat that
0: i know i know um yeah i hope they actually play them and play them at the same time because it'd be really fun to see them actually It would, play and then
1: you can see play. if they actually like get the ball to them or not which yeah. would be the other piece of the-
0: <laughs> I <laughs> mean they they can play because like they had to genuinely like learn how to play and right. you know and in order right. to perform in the show um, you can't really fake that it's interesting cuz like if you look through the whole cast bio like most of them had basically never played before.
1: Oh um, wow! Whatever,
0: but like only a couple of them had any real experience playing soccer. But they all
1: right. Learned,
0: like the rest of them had to learn. And, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and became like very good at it uh, over the course of so. Yeah. Now we get to see if if those those skills <laughs> actually hold Transfer, up. Transfer right. Yeah. Jamie Tart is the striker. He appears to be um, on television. So we shall see. Um, so yeah, that's uh that's that's my good news so it's all vacation talk i guess yeah i know well it's (laughs) it's the season
1: for vacation talk right like i feel like we we had put it off until now so everyone didn't have to deal with it until this moment so yeah all the restraint that we have shown
0: (laughs) (laughs) till now well, then, also mine is also like we planned it for the end of the summer, right? So like the girls got to go to a camp for four weeks, and then we then we you know spending the last couple of weeks of vacation away together, and we'll have like a week when we come back, um, and you know to sort of recover and
1: yeah, and then it is to it. back to school. Yeah, yeah this I is our know. first
0: experiment with this whole idea of like going away. I mean, we took our kids to Legoland for like a few days last year, but like that's a drive. Yeah. Um, you know so like yeah getting on a plane thing, is
1: a different but, sort of thing yeah yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> for two weeks
1: <laughs> yeah yeah
0: it's gonna it's gonna be interesting my, my parents are coming and we have you know we're gonna see family and all that stuff okay.
1: so oh that's nice yeah that's
0: great. yep yep um all right so uh Onto a different topic entirely.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, we're like shifting gears, shifting gears.
0: <laughs> we are, we are 180ing this. <laughs>
1: we really are. Like we're we're cruising we're in a really remarkably gonna... different direction now. So Very
0: different direction. Although Brad has you know fat kids and stuff, yeah, so yeah, you know, no, sure.
1: it's yeah, yeah. We can
0: talk can... about vacations and kids with him, if you want.
1: Sure. <laughs> <That's>... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Change of pace we can, sure, why we not? can.
1: Yeah. right, right, well, yeah. But it's a different, it's a different vibe that we're moving into now yeah. with this guest. That's for sure. So,
0: and who who is the mystery guest?
1: So the mystery guest is today is Dr. Brad Onishi, um, who I have been on his podcast. So I'm very excited to have him again. I'm always very excited, but very excited to have him on our <laughs> podcast never gonna not be excited um and so brad is the author of preparing for war the extremist history of white christian nationalism and what comes next and then he's the co-host of the popular podcast straight white american jesus that covers the intersections of religion and politics it's a great podcast y'all should listen to it it is and then he's also a professor at the university of san francisco thanks for being with us brad
2: I'm so excited to be here, and I feel like it's been way too long since I've gotten to talk to you, Kelly. And uh, i now have the chance to meet you, John. So anyway, I'm super stoked to be here, and thanks for thanks for you know inviting me.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you. Um, welcome to the beautiful Nose Studios. Uh, recently. <laughs> recently refurbished um aren't aren't they lovely um so we were talking in the intro we we had a great chat about vacations in summer and what fun we've been having and are about to have and then we're like so let's talk about christian nationalism uh so we're 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 making the shift into less fun summary topics which is (laughs) always good but let's ease our way into it i guess a little bit so 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 brad um let's talk a little bit about you, get to know you a little bit better. In your book, you talk about uh, a little bit about your upbringing, um, a little bit about your time as a Christian nationalist, um, getting sucked into evangelical Christianity, and then sort of your uh, working your way out of it. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Transition then of like how you got to, uh, being a college professor slash podcaster slash author, um, and and as we often ask uh, people on this show how you got into becoming part of the religious studies world, uh, in general. Yeah, I mean, um,
2: the 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 last part of this answer is that people like Kelly Baker. Sort of help me understand, you know, that you could do really cool stuff, like write for different publics and um, actually help people, and not just, um, you know, stay behind the ivory tower and and do whatever happens over there. Um, yeah. So that's that's the 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 last part of the answer. The first part of the answer is uh, I left my church and um, evangelicalism in two thousand five. I went to Oxford thinking I was going to be a theologian, and that was really a soft landing. Because when you tell your evangelical megachurch you're leaving because you want to hang out with Satan and and go twerk and hey and go to raves, they're like, "What?" That's but if you tell them you're leaving to be a theologian, they're like, "Oh, all right, acceptable." Like we'd rather mm-hmm. missionary, we'd rather right. like you starting another church. But all right, somehow you convinced Oxford to let you in, and you're going to be a theologian. <laughs> like we'll take it, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I get over there 6,000 miles away from home and I've never really been away from home. I've never been an adult who's not in ministry. Like I've been in ministry since I'm 18 and I'm thinking like, I'm going to be a theologian and like, I'm going to go hang out with like the social justice Methodists and then the high church Anglicans and do some liturgy and it's going to be super fun. And like very quickly realize I don't want to do that, but mm-hmm. Also, very quickly realized that religion continued to be the thing that fascinated me, that compelled me, that made me want to get up in the morning. So it was a really weird space to be in, like deconstructing what was event- essentially my own faith, but realizing there was nothing in me that wanted to stop investigating religion. And so, you know, by the time I leave there two years later, I'm fully on the like study of religion tract. Right i i I do my PhD at UCSB, um, which is famously a program designed uh for religious studies like the first thing they teach you at UCSB on day 1 is like we do not do theology do not talk about like we don't do church history right we do Christian yeah, we, yeah, we yeah, his, yeah. you know the study of Christian history we don't yeah. do um Christian ethics right i mean it is not chicago divinity school it is not wherever so um that training really kind of helped me develop myself as somebody who was a scholar of religion doing religious studies even though i had had two degrees in theology, like I had a seminary degree in theology and an Oxford degree in, in what was supposed to be theology. So um, anyway, all that leads to being kind of somebody who knows what it's like on the inside, but somebody who's trained to see things from the outside. And sure. that's what I do as a podcaster and a writer and can talk more
0: about it. But that's the, you know, that's the short answer. So you grew up in California. And I think that's an interesting sort of place to start here because California, I think, to people who have never been there or don't know very much about it, I think people think of California as like the place where liberalism lives and pretty much nothing else. And the reality is, of course, (laughs) that California is a microcosm of the U.S. in a lot of ways in that, yeah, sure, in the big urban areas, right, there's a lot of progressive liberal thought. um, And then you get outside of them, and there certainly isn't. Um. So can you talk a little bit about like your experience growing up in California and what people should know about California aside from the sort of like Gavin Newsom, you know, San Francisco, LA liberalism. Yeah. Um, and what, what, it, what, what's the, like why is California such a kind of a hotbed of the sort of Christian nationalist movement? Yeah. I love this. I love talking
2: about this. Um, so like when I dropped my daughter at daycare today, you know, I made sure she had her diapers and her milk and her, her copy of, of Das um, so yeah. The, no, um Yeah. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's no. Sorry. But the one with the, the, the one
0: with the pictures though, right? Like that's the one that we have. It's totally age appropriate. Like it's yeah. illustrated oh, and yeah.
2: For, like it's all like, we're not monsters. Like Bluey's. Yeah. 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 It's a cocoa version. It's cocoa. Anyway. um, All right. So, like Southern California is so fun because um like if you look at the history of LA County and especially Orange County and like places like Ventura County, which is like right above LA and San Diego counties, they're really places where like in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, in that post-war boom, you get what is called the Sunbelt migration. And we're talking millions of Southerners and millions of Midwesterners who are like, we're going to California why? Well, believe it or not, the real estate was super cheap back then. You obviously had great weather. There's no winter, there's no whatever. And that's where the defense industry was centered in uh, the post-war years. So like if you wanted to work for a big contractor, make a really good middle middle class living and live in what felt like a, a very nice climate with very cheap houses, believe it or not, Orange County, LA County, those kinds of places were the place to be. Now, who were the people moving? They were like white Southerners, white Midwesterners. And a lot of them um, are are bringing the South with them is the way I put it. Like my mother comes from West Tennessee, Missouri. And, you know, she spoke with a Southern drawl all my whole life. And it's because she didn't feel like she had to like contour herself to Orange County, California. She felt like there was enough of the South in Southern California that she could be like when we went to grandma's house, we ate grits. And and biscuits. I mean we ate, you know, food that you think you'd find, right, in um, in in Memphis or in in uh, in Atlanta. So, all that to say, those white Christians shaped that part of uh, of California in a way that it really becomes the Bible Belt. So like where I grew up, you know, we always fashioned ourselves as a persecuted minority of evangelicals, but like if you went to the see with the pole prayer meeting like once a year at our high school, a a school of 2000 kids probably had 200 people standing out there praying right mm-hmm. you know what mm-hmm. i mean i mean there's like five or six mega churches surrounding my high school um so all of that is meant to say like where i grew up is probably more conservative than some of the people's listening who 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 grew up in the midwest or the south even though you all imagine southern california as this like place where people are, right. you know, living in communal homes and, um, you know, reading Marx and, and whatever else.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine, and I don't know if I'm right about this, but I, I always sort of imagined that part of what led to the kind of West Coast evangelical movement forming into um, what it is and a lot of the kind of underpinnings of Christian nationalism is the collision of that kind of migration plus the sort of like manifest destiny westward expansion of like the 19th century, right? That gave us Mormonism as well, right? This sort of like, uh, it, it, is, it is God's will that I that I be out here in the West, right? And sort of, um, do you think that that's true that there's sort of a, almost like a, 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 a stew, right? Of kind of these two sort of threads of that story? Very much,
2: and the the way I like to illustrate this is the Crystal Cathedral. The Crystal Cathedral is this yeah. famous mega church, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it starts in an, in a, the parking lot of a drive-in,
0: and so literally,
2: you know, Robert Schuller looks at this this movie theater drive-in parking lot, and he's like, "Oh, that's my church, right?" And yeah. you would you would I don't think in nineteen the nineteen fifties you'd find somebody like in Pittsburgh or in Chicago where they would say something like that, but like California and especially Southern California just had this feel of an unzoned land, like an open lot, make of Mm -hmm. it what you will, which, which falls Mm -hmm. very much in line with that manifest destiny ethos. Yeah. Yeah, Um, Yeah. It's also a place where two things are really important. One is, uh, there's no ethnic whites. So you're like, what does that mean? What I mean is like, my brothers lived in Pittsburgh for a long time and you go hang in Pittsburgh, right? My, my wife comes from a small town in the Northeast people are polish like you ask you Who, what are you and they're like I'm polish American right I'm Irish I like I come from an Italian neighborhood it right the white folks in Southern California have none of those neighborhoods. there's none of those bastions of like generations long of like here's where the Irish sort of like hung out in this part of town and here's where the Italians you want to go get to the go down to the deli and go down to the place where there's like the historic Italian neighborhood you want to go like where's the like the you know the the kielbasa festival that's something my wife and I go to like almost every year in her hometown that doesn't exist. It's an unzoned land. So the whiteness gets amped up because there's no other identity marker, right? It's mm-hmm. not like, oh, I'm Polish. Let's go to the Polish thing. I'm Italian, right? That's one. Two, yeah. the mainline churches and all of their committees and their action plans and their they their reach doesn't get to Orange County or LA. So like the Methodists and the Presbyterians are really ill-equipped to like kind of hold people in their mainline structures Mm -hmm. So what do you get? You get mega churches built out of unzoned lots of like charismatic, you know, Robert Schuller and and other, uh, you know, uh, elite pastor types who are like, come follow me, not your denomination, not your committee. Right. right? So Southern California develops that whole ethos. So I think it's very much Manifest Destiny. I think it's very much West Coast. Mm. And I think it's very much like people unmoored from the main streets that they left, And needing to find new forms of community, and a megachurch is a really nice way to do it.
1: So I think one of the things that's fascinating to me about this is that people don't often associate megachurch with white Christian nationalism, right? They want to think about it as far right. They want to think about it as certain wings of the Republican Party and certain sort of denominations, right, that this falls under. And so what your work does is say, wait, hold on. Like, let's think about where this emerges in these different forms. So could you walk us through that a little bit about how you find it in these places that folks might think are unexpected? um, Two, that it's not just popping up in these places that we would assume are fringe, right? Or that we would assume are um, just... The places that we expect it to fit narratively, right? That it's in these other spaces too.
2: Yeah, I, this is such a great question, and it's such an important point. And I think that um, you know everybody has their different uh, different ways of approaching something like Christian nationalism. There's a lot of sociolo- sociologists out there. Uh, there's a lot, you know, some historians. There's there's political scientists. I guess for me, regardless of your methodology and the way you get into this material, my hope is that you'll see that we have to stop assuming it's a fringe phenomenon if we want to confront the danger it poses. And yes. so, like you know, yeah. And I mean, I who am I talking to? Like the the, the like mm-hmm. OG of this, who like you know is like, hey, you know, the KKK <laughs> is actually like thoroughly American and thoroughly Christian. You yeah. know. If you yeah. didn't, if you didn't realize, so. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have to explain this to, to, to you, Kelly uh, at all, but I think.
1: Right. But, but our listeners right No, I mean, yeah, and this is what I like about what you're doing is that, um, this, that you're expanding this for us, right? You're saying that actually, yes. And right. There are these different places too, that we have to like get beyond those narrow conceptions that we have of white Christian nationalism, because it's so dangerous to keep pigeonholing them in the same damn spaces Over and over and over again because you're missing the influence that they have in this certain way. You can tell this is a soapbox issue for me. I apologize to our (laughs) our listeners. What they don't see is that under my desk, I have a little soapbox (laughs) that I slide under and then I step on when this comes up and then I like slide it back out. But I'll let you speak to this, Brad, (laughs) now (laughs) that I've like jumped in on it. I'm happy for
2: you to speak about it. You're, I mean, you're, you're a big inspiration (laughs) for me on this. So, I mean,
1: well, I appreciate it.
2: I mean, I, I, I guess let me, let me just. Illustrate it using my church. My church, if you came to it, it's a kind of small by mega church standards. It's like 2,000, 2,500 people. So, you know, as mega churches, it's not like it's a beginner Lamborghini, right? Not a supercar, right. but like, you know, like a beginner supercar. Anyway, um, we were not like the overtly political um, congregation. This was not the place where you found extremist far right Republican ideals being sort of seeping into Sunday school curricula. These were like middle class to upper middle class white people who just assumed that the 4th of July uh, and, and, you know, hymns from church went together when 9-11 happens. I mean, this is just a great example of like double down on the patriotism, double down on the Christian identity. And what you start to see emerging is this sort of us against them mentality, Mm -hmm. this uh, here or there, right in or out mentality. I remember suggesting to the music minister at, in the wake of two thousand eleven or nine eleven that this might be an opportunity for us to somehow convey to our congregation the travesties of of violence all over the world. And he looked at me like he wanted to like make me disintegrate at that moment. Just like this is about America, and 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 in some ways I get it. Nine eleven was a really really traumatic time, and he wasn't ready to have that conversation. But you know if we don't take account of the fact that the the little benign church ladies who we assume are harmless are sitting next to people who are at J6 and they both go to you know right the same middle class to upper middle class church and the same middle class to upper middle class cafe after church and they send their kids to the same schools if we don't accept that they're together in the same spaces we're missing it i'll give you one more example and that is i went to a protest uh, a protest against Tony Perkins and the Family Research Council at a at a mega church where I live now, and we're at the we're out there, you know, protesting. We got our signs, and nobody's doing anything. We're just sort of getting people to honk and showing our disapproval of Tony Perkins. Some of the church people tried to give us donuts, you know. Okay, all right. Some of them wanted to talk about Jesus, and then others uh, across the the street were Proud Boys and people wearing Nazi propaganda, right? So those guys, I guess, were there to protect the church from us or something. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Church gets out and people are walking to their cars and some of them are kind of like giving us dirty looks. Some of them are trying to convert us, whatever. And I'm thinking, all right, what's going to happen here with these Proud Boys and this Nazi propaganda? There's a world where people walk out and are like, hey, Proud Boy people, hey, Nazi uh, people. We love you. We want you to know Jesus, but you can't do that here. And we don't want our church associated with Proud Boys and Nazis. So, right. if you're going to do that here, please go somewhere else. We'd love to talk to you about the Kingdom of God and, and Christ's love, but we don't need you protecting us. Right? N- not what happened. People walking right. out. Hey, Jeff. Jeff, how's it going? You know, Jeff the Proud Boy. Jeff, what's up? You coming to lunch? You coming to? L- okay, we'll see you at lunch. Okay, Jeff. All right, see you. La-. They're like very much like oh i'll see you at the barbecue later greg greg the proud boy that to me is how we got to think of this these like right. run of the mill white folks running walking out of a mega church waving at the proud boys and making sure they'll see them at the barbecue later that's christian nationalism in the mainstream
1: right yeah. right and and i think that that's the part that is so uncomfortable that people have a hard time with, right? I, I mean, I have this like running joke that anytime I present on the Klan and white Christian nationalism, I always have these very sweet and earnest little old white ladies who want me to know that what Jesus is really about is love <laughs> and that their churches have stuff going on that looks like this Klan stuff, right? But they can't possibly be... doing the same kind of thing right and I try to be gentle with them at the same time that I'm like you're doing the exact same thing right Mm -hmm. like you're participating in this because you're complicit in these sorts of things but they just they don't want to deal with the discomfort of that or the like deep like racial reckoning that they would have to do to pay attention to this. Right. So to say like, hey, Jeff, are you coming to the barbecue? Right. Like the disconnect there is is pretty damn wild. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, And and just shows how um, entrenched and invisible this is to so many folks that they just can't kind of pay attention to it. And I imagine. That it goes over really well when you point this out, because it goes over remarkably well when I point this out. <laughs> this is, so,
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, depends on what you mean you by remarkably well. Right away, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. No, no, it's, it's sarcasm balls. font, oh, no, sarcasm no, 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 font. No, yeah, right, right. I
2: mean, so, I'll be honest. One of the reasons, like, I, it's a lot more. What's the right way to put this? It's a lot more common to see people identify as an ex-evangelical than as an ex-Christian nationalist. And the reason I tell people I'm an ex-Christian nationalist mm. is part of it is because I want them to see I'm identifying that the things I learned about Christianity, the Christianity that I adopted and that I I evangelized was about a myth of the uh of the American nation. I took part in it. I'm regret it and that was part of what who I was. I'm admitting t- that to you. So when you want to sort of like, uh, this doesn't go over well in a minute because I'm going to tell you about you. I want yeah. you to know, I, I identify as somebody who was part. I'm not trying to tell you that I've never fell to this trap or I was a Christian, but I surely didn't give into this temptation. Right. I'm telling you I was in it and I, I saw the evils and there's a reason I left it. So at least hear me out, you know? And so right. yeah. I think it's it's harder for, like I've met a lot of ex-evangelicals where I'm like, hey, are y'all, XY Christian nationalists too? And they're like, well, I don't know, buddy. Uh That's I don't like yeah. saying that. I don't, I don't like, you know, I like telling people I quit coffee, but I don't like to say that I had a <laughs> other, yeah. other things that I stopped doing. Right. It's like, you know, it's, it's yeah. less, it's less palatable to the self sometimes. So, yeah.
0: I, I, so for the sake of our listeners, uh, who I'm sure most of them have an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about Christian nationalism, but I do also want to get, specifically, Brad, what your definition of it is. Um, And I'll get to that in a second. I also want to ask a follow-up question to something that Kelly uh, just asked a second ago. But in your book, you specifically actually refer to yourself or your your time as a Christian nationalist as being a white Christian nationalist. And I think that's really interesting because um, you are someone who a lot of people now, and especially in the past, would not consider white. Um, And the concept of whiteness and Christianity and nationalism, all three of them are very much, you know, sort of um, self-defined right within this within this framework. Um, why is it important, do you think, to go ahead and call it white Christian nationalism, knowing full well that like non-white people are also part of this movement? Mm-hmm. Right. And like what if you you're to give the easy definition right, of what Christian nationalism is? Um to people who just kind of have a vague sense of what it is like what do you think is the most clarifying way of of yeah. defining that term
2: I think if you want to privilege Christians in the United States in any way you're a Christian nationalist so if if you think Christianity should be privileged in the government like we should only be able to swear on the bible as a can, as as elected officials uh, you'll only vote if you say I'll only vote for a christian you're telling me that Right, if somebody has really good ideas about democracy, about you know the ways that a republic should be run, the ways that your state or community or, or city should be run, but they're not a Christian, right? If you think that Christians only should be elected, if you think that Christians should have a privileged place when it comes to culture, like you're upset that like somebody says, uh, you know, a greeting that that does not include your holidays, or right? I can go from the small to like, why are we saying Happy Holidays? all the way to the mm. big, which is like Paul Joop's data shows us that 9% of Americans think that only Christians should be citizens and 14% think that the church should have a veto on American law, right? So a Christian nationalist is somebody who privileges in, in any way. Like I'll I'll give you one that the, the church ladies hate, which is I just don't <laughs> think, I just don't like, if you think we should have in God we trust on our money, then I think you're a Christian nationalist because like not all of us believe in God and in America, you're not supposed to like have to believe in God to be a citizen. And so why is that on our money? Um, and I think that's a really small sort of like microwave. And then the all the way to the 14% of Americans who think that the church should have a veto on our policies. That's Christian nationalism, right? Um, now why talk about it as white? I think historically and sociologically, there's a case to be made that white Christian nationalists tell a distinct story about the United States from others. So there are black Christian nationalists, there are. Uh, an increasing number of Latin A Christian nationalists, there are Asian American Christian nationalists. On the whole, not totally, and especially as we talk about like the New Apostolic Reformation and other Pentecostal movements, this gets more complicated. But on the whole, uh, BIPOC Christian nationalists, and especially Black Christian nationalists, Tell a story about the United States as never living up to its creed, never living up to its promise, but maybe someday it will. It will be a place of equality, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for everyone. It will be a place where we have a more perfect union. The white Christian nationalist tells a story of nostalgia. This used to be a great country. It is no longer a great country because the city on a hill got invaded by interlopers and invaders and all kinds of people from outside of the city on a hill. So maybe the city on a hill should like have a wall around it, right? Like did Jesus say that in the gospel, Luke, maybe, who knows? Um, So like, you know, the idea for them is like, we got to get back to past glory Mm -hmm. to when things made sense. And usually they're talking about the 1950s. So before the civil rights movement, before the voting rights act, before immigration reform, before the Feminine Mystique is published, before Stonewall, before The Loving Case, I can go on, right? So to me, when we bring in the white, we actually get a lot more clear vision of what certain folks want for the country and what others don't. And that's why I think it's actually really important to use that. As far as me, I'm a mixed race person. My dad's Japanese American. My mom is a white Southerner. Um, I think whiteness is, is a... Political project. I think it's a metaphysical project. And even if, you know, I follow like Miguel de la Torre here. If even if you're not white, you can try to subscribe and ascribe to whiteness as an ideal. Right. Um, I also think that my church was a place that said, You can be a person of color here, just don't be a person of color here, right? Like you can come to the church, just don't like try to be super <laughs> right. Japanese about it. Don't try to be super Mexican about it. Don't try to be ethnic in any way. Like, just we don't like you know, at the potluck, we're going to have turkey sandwiches. If you bring kimchi and it smells weird, we're, we're going to like, we got to get that (laughs) out of here. Come on. It's kimchi. Who who eats that? You know? And I'm going to be like, well, I do. (laughs) But so the (laughs) message, the message was don't be a person of color, but you're allowed to be, you're allowed to be here if you are a person of color. Right. Right. And to me, it took years to understand that was like white contours white food, right. white songs white worship styles white dress white mannerisms and if you bring in other stuff it's weird it's other it's foreign and we want you the guy with the onishi name but you know leave the kimchi at home
1: right
0: right that's yeah that's it that's a great uh way to articulate it i i i want to uh, build off of something that Kelly asked about the um, mega church thing, sort of the the way that um, this kind of exists and breeds the mega churches, and I think this is interesting because one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is the way that this movement sort of hides in plain sight, and 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 the um, sort of institutions and channels it uses, right, to sort of uh, both protect itself and also grow. And I think what sort of um, counterintuitive maybe to a lot of people is that when you think about mega churches you think about protestantism you think about um this idea of like um you know sort of balkanization right that that all of these different churches exist and they are all independent and they have their own ideology and their own way of doing things and so on and so forth and so how can you have this massive nationwide movement being fostered in places (laughs) that doesn't have a kind of a pope, right? Doesn't have a, um, a, a, a central authority. Um, so, so like, how how do we get there? Like, what are the channels through which this becomes a unified movement through evangelicalism, right? If evangelicalism is by nature sort of decentralized.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think there are. You know, my colleague Matt Taylor would say there are different. There are Christian nationalisms, and we have to like pay attention to the the, the contours. Um, however, I think there is a way that we can approach this question by saying that uh, number one, you know, and, and I try to lay this out in the book. There was a concerted political effort on the part of certain right wing political operatives in the sixties and seventies to find ways to unify conservative Protestants behind a certain number of political issues. So. You know, one is school segregation, desegregation in the South. One is abortion eventually. The other is uh, the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. We can talk about LGBTQ issues. We can talk about foreign policy and uh, and war. But those things were were sort of used to create what is understood to be a kind of unified conservative Christian political ethos, right? That you could go to a church... In uh, in uh, Southern California, you could go to a church in uh, in Kansas, you could go to a church in in uh, in Pensacola. But if they're evangelical there, you can probably find some of those elements of what's important to them politically present. And that was a really, really well done political strategy that eventually takes over the GOP such that it's really hard to get elected in the GOP if you don't kind of fall in line with those certain, you know, four or five tenets of evangelical conservative politics. I think the others are, uh, there's a couple of things. I think one is mega churches are consolidators. They're like the big brand in town that you either copy or you get, you get destroyed and it, cause everyone goes over to do business with them. Mm -hmm. So like my church was 2000 people, but who did we follow? Like we were technically part of the evangelical Quaker church, which is a whole nother podcast. If you're interested, just, you know, happy to come back and explain how you can have an (laughs) evangelical Quaker (laughs) Not going to go into it now. Know. Yeah, <laughs> Richard. My church is Richard Nixon's church. Richard Nixon was a Quaker, and that's yeah, my church. right, right. Yep. Uh, so we are twenty five hundred people, but who do we look up to? We look up to Rick Warren. He's half an hour down the road. So, like, mm-hmm. if you came to our meetings, it was like, what's Rick Warren doing now? What book yeah. did he just write? You know what I'm saying? And so all of our stuff starts to look like a mini Rick Warren thing. -huh and that happens all over the nation. It could be Bill Hybels, right? It could be Mark Driscoll. It could be any of these other figures that people have, you know, rightly negative feelings about, et cetera. But the copycat game is either one of survival or go away. If you're if you're a hundred person church and you're not offering the same like I saw a statistic the other day its so like eighty five percent of music in evangelical churches either comes from Bethel or from Vineyard.
0: yeah, right? Wow,
2: yeah, right. Because it's it's a consolidation game, you know. And so, anyway, all that to say, I think there are ways outside of a, a hierarchy and a pope that you can get what feels like a unified evangelical movement. And I'll just say one more thing. And I, 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 this was true in the '90s. It's true now. There's so many voices outside of the pulpit that have an influence on people. So that could be the radio back in the day and James Dobson, but it could also be the Christian book industry. What books do they have on sale at the Lifeway bookstore down the road? Mm -hmm. It can also be the Christian music industry and it can now be the Christian podcasting and the Christian parenting books and the Christian how to raise kids books and the, how to be a good mom and how to be the godly dad and all that stuff kind of books. (laughs) So those industries are billion dollar industries and they shape things often more than the pulpit does.
1: And, and it's again that they seem sort of innocuous, right? Yes. Yeah. They, that. Again, it's that sort of way in which y- people would assume that maybe these aren't political when they are political, that when you pick up the How to Be a Good Mom book, you don't necessarily think that it's a white Christian nationalist manifesto, yep. but it entirely is yep. um, about how to be a particular type of mom to a particular type of child for a particular type of nation.
2: And and you know, two months later, you're totally against the COVID vaccine. And yep. you think that, yeah. like, there's a, uh, you know, a new world order and yep. you're, you're thinking about homeschooling your kids. Like, yeah, I mean, that's how it goes. Right. right. Like, you know what right. I mean? Yeah. So that that's yeah. the progression. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, to, to sort of to, like if you look at if you look at, at, you know, the sound of freedom right now. Right. Like, it's a great example of this. It's this it's this movie that is Kelly, do you, you know the sound of freedom?
1: Is this the one about trafficking is that like this is the
0: one about trafficking? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So
1: I have I've vaguely followed this, but I am not up to date on it. So.
0: Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that is preying on people's lack of awareness of of the the you know source material. I mean, Jim Caviezel is obviously a you know, far right QAnon lunatic, um, and uh, uh, the the story that it tells is one that is the story of basically a con man who who's whose institution whose organization has gotten into a lot of trouble and uh, you know and, and, and it tells a story of child abduction and uh, child trafficking that is just not consistent with the facts right and like and it's also meant to prey on people's sense of you know fear about children and the family and and white America and all this sort of thing and it's a real big hit and it's made a lot of money and conservatives love it and it's that exactly that kind of thing right and and it really um it's 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 quite troubling yeah
1: i think i saw a number of tweet threads about this where it was talking about like actual dangers to children right like where someone fact checked it right where they're like if we're going to talk about the actual threats to children when it comes to abduction like people don't want to deal with the fact that it's actually family member right like the like reality of stranger danger versus all these other sorts of things, and it's right? it's not um,
0: say it's not sold by kicking down doors in Colombia, right? With like a group yeah. of you know, uh, yeah. Anyway, no, but I. So
2: the thing that you said though that I links up with my experience and my research is family protect like, and I think one of the just coming. I'm always happy to talk about Southern California is this like bastion of of this movement. Um, I, I think the the thing about Southern California is it really is a place where that family values ethos can just grow. I mean, James Dobson started focus on the family 20 minutes up the road from there. And you really get this, this mm-hmm. sense of like suburban enclaves where the kids are the most important on soccer. We go to sat- on Saturdays, we go to soccer and ballet. And then on, you know, Sundays we go to church and on Monday nights we do this and Wednesday nights Bible study. And it's just family, family, family. And that kind of like obsession with the nuclear family is a really good starter pack to get somebody to an evangelical church. Like if you have Mm -hmm. the young parents who are 31 years old and Mm -hmm. they need community and they need a daycare and they need a preschool and they need a place for the mom to hang out with other moms and the dad to hang out Mm -hmm. with other dads. Hey, the church is such a great, like, come on in y'all. We got a, Hey, men's basketball Wednesday morning and a mom's group on Thursday nights. And like, and so people who are not even sort of quote unquote religious, just get ushered into these spaces. And then as I say, like a year later, they've they they're, they're homeschooling their kids yep. and they're anti-vaxxers and they're can't stop talking about you know this new movie with the other jc you know if i was jim cavizo my twitter handle would be like the real jc or some shit like yeah that. But, yeah you know, he's really lost his opportunity in that sense but yeah,
1: I, I think it's interesting, too, because I one of the things that John and I end up talking about is that like he's in Massachusetts and I'm in rural Florida. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I've mentioned on here before is that when I was looking for summer camps for my youngest kid, who's nine, that my option was 4-H camp, which is an every other week, three day a week thing. Right. Great, sustainable child care. <laughs> or um, I could do a variety of Bible camps with churches that have signs about how what we're supposed to have is faith in nation, right? Which for someone who works on white Christian nationalism, I'm like, oh, all the hell to the no on this, (laughs) right? Like we're just, we're not doing it. But one of the things that was interesting to me when we moved back here is almost instantly – I was approached by women's groups from local churches, right? They don't know me, which is why I was approached. But very much like they're like, hey, girl, we have a women's movie night. We're watching wholesome rom-coms. We're doing it at the church. Don't you want to be involved? And I'm like, only if you want me to study you, right? (laughs) Like very much like this is how they get you, right? Like you move into a new space, You need a community. This is how you get involved. And so, unless you're like me, who is like, this could be a great ethnographic project, but I don't want to take one on right now, right? Like, that it just is a way to orient your world. And, yeah, in a space like I am right now, where white Christian nationalism is just so obvious and so rife, you know, that it doesn't take much for me to see a don't tread on me or Trump (laughs) or, you know, some incarnation of a church sign that's very much just blaring a white Christian nationalism message um, for the recent July 4th or something like this, Um, that it is incredible to me how quickly folks can be just pushed through this. Right. And end up, as you said, right. Like it is like, we get you by offering the, you, your family, the community. Right. Um, And this sort of thing. So um, if it wasn't Bible camp, it was the kids that were trying to get my kids to go to vacation Bible school who are all very cute and very earnest, but are like, don't you want to come to our vacation Bible school? And I'm like, we do not, but thank you for your adorableness. Right. Um, But it's the continued like attempt, right, to missionize and to kind of move you into this worldview. That I think, unless you're really conscious of this happening, it's easy to kind of fall into it, right? Um, as well. Um, unless you're <laughs> like me and like cagey about the shit. So,
2: <laughs> well, and I, I think people always wonder too, like, why do why do folks who would benefit from social programs like free pre-K or um, other things like why why do those things never seem to take root in, in certain communities? And I think one of the answers is like who benefits if you cut social programs? One are right, right yep. the rich and the wealthy and the politicians who basically represent them. So the the right. state senators and the the congressional uh, folks and then the churches. Because, right? Like, because, like, I, you know, when I, I I remember when I moved to England and I I walked by a daycare and I was like, what is this? And someone was like, oh, it's a daycare. And I was like, oh, who runs the daycare? And they were like, who do you think, silly? Like, this, the little council, the village state runs this. And I was like, oh, and they're like, yeah, it's free. And I I looked at them like,
1: hmm. What? Free? Free.
2: (laughs) Really? Free
0: in exchange for what, though? Yeah. 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 And I was like,
2: what do you, what do you mean? And they were like, well, you live in this community, you get to bring your children here because. Yeah people need help with that. I was like, yeah, okay. And on down the line as I like when I lived in the UK and I lived in France and those are not perfect place. uh, I'm not, this is not an homage to those places, but as an American, you start to realize, oh, right. Daycare is free. And, uh, you know, there's maternity leave is six months or a year. And there's like, you know, other forms of parental leave that are like mandated by this, you know, by the state. And, all of it and like retirement is sort of like a thing that you don't have right. to fret about when you're in your 40s because you haven't saved a million Family dollars values. and all this stuff. Yeah. And you realize like if if you don't have that in the in the United States, one of the results is those local churches are the places that if you're they in are. a in your rural community, Kelly, what are we gonna do? We need cheap daycare, we need a place to take our kids and drop them off for like summer yep. camp. We need a Wednesday night activity so they're not driving me nuts. Get out. Yeah get out of here and go to Bible study at the youth group. Oh, summer camp. All right. Go to the church summer camp. I don't care. Oh, the church is going to the lake for two days. Get out of here. Go do that. Yep, oh, yeah. mom group. Oh, dad's camping trip. Yep. Yay. And all of a sudden you're in and you're like, I, do I believe in the Holy Trinity? Who the hell knows? But I'm a white Christian nationalist. That's for damn sure. You know. Yeah.
1: The, the flag is there alongside the Christian flag and there are no questions asked. Yeah.
0: And I think, yeah. the other, I mean, the other side of it for, for this country, especially, is that, you know, when you think about um, a country without a official state religion, but that has institutionalized sort of Christian supremacy, right, you think about, like, well, as a uh, left-wing secular atheist, like, what's my organizing structure? How do, how, like, how... How, you know, where do we go on Sundays to, like, provide mutual aid for each other and set up daycares and schools and that sort of thing, right? I mean, this is something I have to think about a lot, being someone who teaches in private schools that, you know, in order to teach religious studies in private schools, my options are limited as to, like, how I can actually do that and in what institutions, because there aren't any, you know... Schools to like teach religion for atheists, right? Like that doesn't exist. It's not a thing that you can do in America. It's not here. And then also like on the other side of that, I was thinking the other day, and this is sort of a weird thought, but it, it, it ties directly into what we're saying here, which is that I saw somebody with a bumper sticker that said like, I support my local police or whatever, right? I can't get a bumper sticker, nor can I put it on my car, unless I really like speeding tickets and I don't, that says ACAP, right? I can't do that, because the second I do that, I'm a target of, you know, the police, which cannot be, as we know, you know, it's it's for, you can't talk bad about the police, and you can't talk bad about the military, and you can't talk bad about religion, and those are the three structures that are, you know, more than anybody else. Right, sort of protecting this this Christian nationalist class. It seems to me. One example that I
2: like to use is is uh, you know when I w- when you're in France, laïcité, like the idea of secularism, is a kind of national brand. It's a national piece of yeah. of like yeah. pride. Right. So the idea that you would have a secular government. Is for most French people, and French has uh, France has all kinds of problems, and, and <laughs> we can do a, a ten other podcasts about France's sure issues. Um, <laughs> I say that as somebody who lived in France, and whatever doesn't matter. All that to say, if you say secular in France, people are like, "Yeah, laïcité, of course." Like, "Yeah, we're a secular government. We don't have a we don't have a religion here." That right? It's a here's my point. It's a good word. It's a good word for the most part. If you hear "secular" on the TV in this country, it's being used as a slur, right? right. And I think that speaks mm. to what you're saying is is just mm-hmm. if you say, "Hi, I'm a secular whatever," or "This is the Secular Alliance," or right, it's always like you're under a modicum of suspicion. You are somebody that we got to keep an eye on. What kind of trouble are you trying to cause? What you don't have any morals? What do you teach your children? Blah 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 right. blah, blah blah. Right?
1: Right? Right? Yeah. No, we um, talk a lot in our house about our children and unleashing them on our neighbors Um, because of the like concerns about what happens when you have a religious studies PhD as a mom, right. And a very evangelical white Christian nationalist, like world that they inhabit because they just, they don't pull any punches, but you know about like navigating that is really difficult because of the way in which like what you're saying, right. The, the way that the words become, slurs right and the way that you identify can become really politically damaging or socially damaging in this instance when we're talking about like teenagers or we're talking about fourth graders or something like this um because you know like they navigate the world as missionary objects um and because of where we are right um and because that's so much a piece of white christian nationalism right everyone's a missionary object um In one way or another, Um, and that evangelism piece is so crucial to this that Mm -hmm. it's—I mean—it's just kind of a an interesting space to inhabit as someone that studies this too. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, where it's especially with Florida, where it's mandated quiet time, which is really just at the beginning of the day, which is just a time for prayer, right? If you want to do prayer.
0: Got nothing um, else to do. Might as well pray. Nothing, nothing else to do. We might as well pray,
1: right? Um, mandated Pledge of Allegiance, right? right? That's also a part of the day. Um, yeah. Plaques yeah. on the walls at schools that are um, Christian in nature, right? Um, that it's just so much of what you inhabit, right? And institutionalized, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's the piece that yep. we've been talking around too, is that institutions are also putting this upon us as well, which is what John was alluding to in, totally. his, in his commentary, so that it's not just <laughs> churches, right? It's the political <laughs> institutions and the social institutions that we're a part of too, that are pressing upon us here as well. And And I think that stuff tends to be even more invisible sometimes than the other parts of it. Um, but yeah. you know, walking into school and seeing that plaque though, where you're like, okay.
2: I remember this I remember this friend of mine in junior high who was a really smart, interesting person named Morgan. And more I asked Morgan one day after I'd converted, I was like, So what your family, what are you guys, you know, what's your deal? And he was like, we're secular humanists. And I had never heard anyone say that because uh uh-huh. The default was, in my suburban context, that even if you were not a church that, uh, excuse me, a family that went to church, you would just sort of describe yourself as, you know, blandly Christian just because, right. yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think my grandma, whether mother was Methodist, or I think my mom used to go to the sure. church down the road, but, you know, we go on Christmas kind of thing. That was like acceptable. Like, all right, you're not one of the sort of, you know, you're not dedicated, but you're not, yeah. you're not outside the categories. And I remember when he told me that, I mean, it was, he was like this anomaly in our context of like, right. so you're openly telling us you're secular humanist. You're like not going to like weasel out of it by saying you go to church once in a while and you're, what right. and that was a social stigma, right? Like when you're in fourth grade or seventh grade or ninth grade, it's a social stigma of like, you're right. telling me that you're secular, you're telling me that you're not Christian and it becomes yeah. a thing as a kid that is hard to navigate. It's really hard right. to to deal with.
0: Yeah, I uh, I also remember um so this was a while back must be the 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 uh British elections in I guess 2000 Twelve, it must have been. Um, anyway, I remember watching the debates for that, and and one of the people running was Nick Clegg, who who sucks. But like Nick Clegg, uh, <laughs> not a Nick Clegg stand podcast over here. But uh, he was running with the Lib Dems, and he openly on stage, and this is one of those moments where I was like, oh my god, this country is uh, a very different beast. Openly on stage in one of the debates, said just in passing, you know. I'm not a person of faith, but, or like, I'm not a believer, but like just declaring himself not religious. And I was like, and this is the sort of thing that people just, if you don't travel outside the U.S. and you think that the U.S. is a kind of like progressive liberal democracy where you can be secular, like this is where I think you, you you're not going to see that happen uh, on a debate stage in America
2: for a generation
0: at least. I mean, like, I I don't know when that's going to be. I mean, I think Bernie is the closest thing we're get, we
2: we yes. got, and, yes. and even Bernie was sort of like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Bernie had his ways right. of saying, "Well, I'm not I'm Jewish. You know, I'm, Jewish. <laughs> yeah, I'm Jewish. Yeah, I'm Jewish," which is, you know, often just yeah. good enough for the person who's not really paying attention to not get if he, you know, he didn't say, "I'm just atheist," you know. Yeah, right. That's
0: exactly uh, yeah. it. Like he very yeah. like we all know he is. Like we all know that Trump's never like been to church or doesn't believe yeah. in God or whatever. But like it doesn't matter. You just have to. You can't obviously trump doesn't acknowledge that openly right but like you can't that's that's not part of the way that we because we we do in saying that we sort of you know tolerate religion or or that we um are interested in religious freedom what we're really saying is that like you can't criticize or or announce yourself as being secular or you're not you know a real american and and fit to um run anything um so Brad real quick so the 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 title of your book preparing for war um let's just talk a little bit about that what is what is what is the war um who's doing preparing and uh h- how are we doing how are we doing in the war yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was like I was like I don't know that we want to know the how we do in part but that was one yeah. of my questions How many too, battles so. has
0: our side <laughs> won recently Brad <laughs> So I think, um, well, I think
2: there's, there's ways to, to be positive about it. So I, I want to make clear, I, I don't like war, and I don't, I'm not encouraging people to necessarily prepare for war. What I'm trying to explain is that for 60 years, there has been uh, a, a, a cohesive movement that understands themselves as preparing for war against other Americans, that they really see their mission as taking the country back for God and for themselves, and they're willing to go to lengths that might surprise you. Uh, So one of the things I explain is that there's been a deep fascination with authoritarian rulers uh, for a long time. So like, you know, the fascination with Putin does not just go back to the Trump years. It goes back to the turn of of the 20th century um, when there was this realization by Paul Weirich and many other luminaries in this uh, this domain that, hey, if you have an authoritarian Christian president who does not have to wait on Congress or the Supreme Court or democratic institutions to do things and he can just put gay people in jail and deport immigrants as he wishes. That's a pretty good model. And he doesn't even have to win elections. So if we don't have the majority, we can still be in power. And, you know, one of the conclusions I I draw is that democracy is not a sacred value to many white Christian nationalists. Power is the sacred value. And so they have been preparing for war and they moreover see January 6th as the first conflict in that war, uh, in essence, right? That they don't see that as, Oh, we lost and we'll just go play pickleball and get brunch. It's like, that's like the Alamo moment. You know what I mean? That's yeah, the remember yeah. the J six moment. Remember the Alamo moment of remember the martyrs, remember the, the, um, you know, the victims remember the, the symbols and the way we fought valiantly and get ready for the next one kind of moment. So that's what I mean by preparing for war. Um, no, I think there's ways to think of the country as having glimmers of hope, like, and that means uh, the ways that students are organizing in Tennessee and in Missouri and places that you would not expect there. You find the most creative and resilient activists and organizers and and, and folks who are just not willing to give up their values, their rights, their bodies, their democracy, their, their what is supposed to be a democracy. So uh, you know, there are reasons, I think, to see glimmers, but there's also... Little fires all around. There are people who are willing to take out a power grid to prevent Drag Queen Story Hour. There are people who are going to sit outside a Dropbox on mailing night, or excuse me, on election night, with mm. AR-15s to watch others. Yeah. There is Patriot Front trying to show up at Pride events to commit, you know, a massacre in essence in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, a summer ago. Um, there are open attacks on trans people. Um, there are just how many legal and extra legal. How many uh, lawful and vigilante forces trying to bring violence against LGBTQ people in the country? So um, if we look for North versus South, I think we'll miss it. If we look at the little fires everywhere, I think it starts to become more and more clear uh, what this kind of looks like on the ground. And so I'm not trying to be alarmist. I'm not trying to be somebody who's like trying to rally people to, um, to a war. I'm trying to say that the best position in any war is if the other side doesn't know you're in one. And I kind of feel like a lot of us have not known that we're part right. of one for a long time. And it probably is just behooves us to kind of maybe become a little bit more aware of that.
1: Yeah, to pay attention.
2: Um <sighs> <laughs> I promise I, I like this happens every time. Attention is exhausting. Yeah. I have I I this happens every time at the end of an interview and I have to like tell people like hey I'm actually kind of fun at parties like not that fun but like a lot no. funner than this. Oh, yeah, no, you, me know, too. you know. You yes, know and like I, and like things aren't not that bad but they are yeah. that bad. Actually they are yeah. that bad but still there's like reasons yeah. to like you know not we, no. we can't give up, you know.
1: No, so. I I I feel for you because I feel the sim- similar way when I talk about this stuff because people are always like and what do you think about the future and I'm like, well, yeah. I live in Florida. It makes it hard sometimes about things, right? Um, yeah. But no, I th- I think you're right to pay attention to these moments where especially activists who are just so determined – to not go down without a fight, who are just on the front lines of these things. Um, I think we see the judiciary doing some interesting things against um, really bad um, legislative actions, Mm -hmm. um, which makes me happy too to see so that this is not um, just folks getting away with things. Um, but there is some action against it, um, that brings me some hope too. So despite my deep sigh, I also see some things that are going right. Um, Mm -hmm. at the same time that it is, it is pretty nerve Mm wracking actually. Um, when you pay attention to this stuff.
0: Yeah, it can be exhausting. Um, as you, your sigh suggested, (laughs) you know, and, 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 and also like something that Brad, when you're talking about Paul Weirich there, um, we, a lot of people may have missed this because we're as we're talking in the midst of a uh, uh, indictment cycle, let's just call it that, right? Like there's things that happen every few months where Trump gets indicted for a bunch of stuff. Um, but right before the indictment cycle began, we we, we had uh, a news report that he his plan for his his next presidency is to uh, dissolve essentially all um, independence within government, right? And so that the president will have, direct control over every single element of and that is that's one of those things where it's like he's not saying i'm going to become a dictator what he's Mm -hmm. saying is i'm going to make this tweak to the way things are done right as the next step sort of in that in that process i'm glad people noticed this enough again before the indictment cycle began um (laughs) that it that it was a a major news story for the three hours or so that our news cycles um, occupy these days. But um, I guess there's some reason to at least be optimistic that people are paying attention to it enough. I don't know. Um, that's, that's about as, that's and about I, as, as I, it gets for me. <laughs> and I, and I, Well, yeah. and I think it's, I,
2: I think it's easy, you know, in the book, I think it's, for me, it's, it's easy to do the Putin comparison and the Putin sort of people. Yeah. 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 People are really want to like, Pay attention when Putin's in the headline, but I think what you just described was Orban, right? That's yes. Orban. Orban yeah. is like I'm gonna, yeah. as president, do things in a way that are supposedly legal, to and democratic to tear down democracy. Yeah. And I feel like the second Trump presidency, and or excuse me, the second Trump presidency, or the DeSantis presidency, was always gonna be the dismantled democracy from within. Like the first Trump presidency was rather buffoonish kind of clowny and still he wrecked so many things and hurt so many people. Right. Yes. The second term is going to be like, all right, how do we use the system to tear down the system and never leave? And that's what I think Orban did. I think that's what Trump wants to do. I fully believe Ron DeSantis is, is capable yeah. of that. I actually think Ron DeSantis is terrible on the stump, but much more strategic behind the scenes as like sure. somebody who knows how to use the levers of government. Yeah. So, um, That's the play. The play is to claim that we all elected this guy, so what are we complaining about? And yet, two years down the road, what was a democracy is now one that's been gutted from the inside. Right. And anytime somebody asks Tucker Carlson, how can you support Orban? The response is, well, he was elected by the people, but you don't like democracy? That's the play, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's the plays to sort of turn it back on you. And so, uh, anyway, I, I think that's also a way... To make this a kitchen table issue across the country is like, you know, reproductive rights and democracy are things we should vote for and right. just like, hey, you might be 20, you might be 25, you might be 30, but it's worth it. It's worth it to vote and it's worth it to try to like not just give in to this and let it happen um, despite the doom cycle and the fatigue and the everybody's right. just wants to not live in this world anymore of yeah. constant, you know, threat. But that's, to me, a way that, you know, one can organize, even if it if it's
0: scary. Yeah. And, and I, what you just said there, too, about, you know, the, well, he was elected, democracy, so on and so forth. I, like, I think that's one of the missing, like, l- least talked about elements to the big lie that I think is also really important, which is that, you know, it's really important for them to have a certain group of people believe that Trump won because the legitimacy right of of him being a democratically elected dictator is really important to them right and so there's that like you need that sort of illusion of popular support in order to sort of take that next step i don't think that gets really talked about enough within the context of the big lie because there's so much else to it right but like i don't think it's just a matter of his um egoism making him unable to admit defeat right there's there's a bigger strategy to that uh, as well
2: I also think the white Christian nationalists never thinks of themselves as illegitimate. Like yeah. they're always right. the founder. Of, they're always the founder of the country. They're always the runner of the country. They're always the yep. legitimate, yep. real American. So, like the idea that he wasn't elected and he's not the legitimate president is like, no, we don't accept it. Like we just don't accept that. Like we, we will never accept that we're not the ones in power, legitimately put there by the founders and history and God and manifest destiny. So. We are always legit. I don't care yeah. about your data and your facts and your numbers and your vote counts. We are legit always. You know what I mean? And I just think there's never accepting another like scenario.
1: <sighs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Super good times. The old, the old Kelly sigh. <laughs> can, um, can you title this episode Good Times with Brad at all? Is that a possibility? Yeah. No, we can okay. yeah. do that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why yeah. not?
1: Yeah. yeah. Totally
2: yeah. accurate.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Good times with Brad. great.
1: Yeah. Good times with Brad. We <laughs> can make it brad's, happen. brad's you super fun hour. Yeah. We this <laughs> super happy, fun hour.
2: Happy hour. Happy, <laughs> hour. happy
1: hour with Brad. Yes. It's great. It's perfect. Oh. Well, Brad, thank you so much for joining us. This yeah, was thanks, great. Brad. Um, yeah, it was I mean, uh, you know, can Move to the bummerish sort of thing, but it was a great hour and we're so glad you were able to no, join us today. I'm so
2: glad to be here mm-hmm. and it's great to talk to you all and, and just, you know, folks um, who are in, we're all in the kind of same orbit in terms of studying religion and having kind of conversations along those lines and it, it's really fun to do that. So I'm just really
0: grateful to, to be
2: here.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Um, if people want to hunt you down on the internet, Brad, or want to buy your book um, <laughs> or anything else that you've... <laughs> that you've worked on people do
2: seem to want to uh, they do seem to want to hunt me down some i get emails I saying I'm, I'm gonna
0: i'm, I'm looking for know. it yeah. We, yeah. Have we, have pretty, we have a pretty we have a pretty supportive supportive listener base so far so uh, we haven't gotten hate mail yet which is, is kind of shocking but fingers
1: crossed all the way uh
0: how, how might people find you on, on yeah be- best way
2: is just um you know social media at straight white jc that's um straight white american jesus is the podcast we don't think jesus was straight white or american but we try to figure out why so many people do um so we uh at straight white jc is our handle i'm at bradley onishi on twitter and um so active there you can email me uh straight white american jesus at america at gmail.com um that's the best email and uh yeah we're we publish a lot we publish three times a week so you know we're we're always out and trying to keep up on the cycles and the indictment cycles and everything else um and um the book is out, so that's preparing for war: the extremist history of white Christian nationalism and what comes next. Uh, it's an audio book now, so if you're an audio person, it's all it's now available. And uh, yeah, that's uh, those are those are the best things.
1: And the podcast is amazing, so you should listen.
2: And Kelly's well, and, on it sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Kelly was guest. <laughs> nine or eight we've done 500 episodes in wow I owe you a royalty check I think it's like three or four million dollars at this point
0: so I will say oh that wow
1: yeah. yeah just yeah yeah, yeah. Just, I just, well, but I, I think
0: you're, you're like to it I haven't gotten you're like guest <laughs> number five so yeah you're pretty, you're pretty early on in our many hundreds of episodes to come uh, as well. <laughs> all right thanks Brad yeah thanks